The country is opening back up again, but so are COVID-related hospital visits. The slope of the curve is definitely going up again. It had flattened for a while, and now it is definitely going up again in the U.S. You can look at the increase in hospitalizations. Over the weekend, North Carolina had its highest ever hospitalization rates. And health officials continue to urge everyone not to dismiss COVID-19. We can get between 5,000 and 60,000 deaths a year from influenza, depending on the year. But for COVID-19, we've already had 120,000 deaths, and that's with all of this great care and shutting down. But hope continues as ECU Brody School of Medicine scientists are working hard on a vaccine. We have a patent where we've removed a very highly immunosuppressive gene, and if we clone those coronavirus genes into that vector, I think we could have a better vaccine and some of them that are being developed. I'm Rich Clindworth, and we'll dive into everything that we've learned about and are learning from COVID-19, now nearly six months after we first heard about it, on episode 13 of Talk Like a Pirate. We're joined now with Dr. Rachel Roper, who is an associate professor of microbiology and immunology at ECU's Brody School of Medicine. Her specialties are virology, genomics, and vaccines. And Dr. Roper was part of the team that worked on the SARS virus outbreak back in the early 2000s. Dr. Roper, thanks so much for joining us again. Happy to be with you. Before we start, I just have to do my little disclaimer here because things change so quickly that we are recording this on Monday, June the 22nd, around 10.30 in the morning. As I say that, I was literally just on the computer and CBS cites the World Health Organization saying that across the world, we had 138,000 new cases reported last night, which they say is the largest daily increase yet, and the U.S. had more than 36,000 cases. Yet, a prominent sports commentator reported that deaths from COVID hit a two-month low on Sunday, which is down 90% from its peak in April. And I I tried several times to find out where he got his source from, but regardless, he has that out there. So what do we believe or what is our outlook here with those numbers? One makes it seem more positive. The other one makes it seem real negative. So in the U.S., um, we had been getting around 20,000 cases a day. And then in June, mid-June, it started going up to 25,000 and up to 33,000 cases per day. That's new cases in the U.S every day. Um, we're, we're down to about 26,000 uh, new cases um, in the last 24 hours. So we have a lot of active disease going on. Um, some of the increases are probably from increases in testing. But we're also getting increases in testing in populations that are very likely to be negative, we're doing repeat testings on, on clinicians, and those are coming up negative, negative, negative. And so um, some of the increase in testing might give an increase in cases, but we also really think we have a real increase in cases. And you can look at the increase in hospitalizations. Over the weekend, North Carolina had its highest ever hospitalization rates. And of course, that's not related to testing at all um, because the you know uh, criteria for admitting someone to the hospital hasn't changed and we were up to 883 and before this time period we had always been below 700 so cases are definitely going up it's not just uh, because of increased testing more and more states are reopening again because we are now uh, five six weeks from some of the early states reopening 
and about four weeks from Memorial Day. This definitely relates to the reopening. And you can look at the graphs and see the increases in you know, total current active cases. And there's been a, a dramatic increase in total active cases in the last few weeks. So, yeah, more people go out, more people get exposed, more people are going to become infected, and then we get increases in hospitalizations as well. The risk-reward right now, with reopening, we have more cases. Does it seem to be working? Are we doing it in a way that the curve is still staying relatively flat, or are we doing it in a way that we could get back to where we were in March and April with a big time strain on certain health systems, depending on where you were. Yeah, the slope of the curve is definitely going up again. It is. It is. It, it had flattened for a while, and now it is definitely going up again in the U.S. And now, the, because of the dramatic increases in cases and hospitalizations, a number of places are now requiring um, masks that had not previously required them before. Um, so Raleigh just instituted required masks. Uh, Dare County. Um, Hawaii has very strict requirements for mask wearing. More and more places in Florida are now starting to require masks because they're starting to get to the point where the hospitals may be overwhelmed. Um, So this is is serious. We need to be really careful. You know, in the U.S., we're getting 25 to 30,000 new cases every day. In China, they made the news last week because they had an outbreak of 200 people. China was able to control this and and pretty much shut it down, Um, and they got 200 cases, and we're getting 20,000 cases now. So um, we really need to be careful and um, concerned about this virus spreading in our country. Can we be open and have business as usual but take proper precautions and keep this curve flat? Hopefully. Um, Yeah, if everybody was wearing masks and being careful with hand washing and staying physically distant from other people, um, I think this could be manageable. Um, One problem, though, is that viruses mutate constantly. And if you think about Darwinian evolution, the mutations just occur randomly, but then, then the more fit viruses are selected. So the ones that can survive in nature better get selected for. So which viruses are going to be selected for currently in our population? And that's going to be ones that can transmit more easily. So I'm worried the virus is going to mutate and become more easily transmissible because there's strong selection right now for because we're stopping viruses that don't transmit very well. And so that's one concern. The virus could become more transmissible and evolve over time. At this point, are we able to see anything, any sort of COVID impact from the protests over the death of George Floyd and the concerns over racism and police brutality? Because of the incubation period, uh, you probably see an increase in cases maybe two weeks after a mass gathering would occur. Um, And then deaths might even be later than that, could be three weeks or four weeks after um, the people become infected. So, so yeah, you know, any kind of mass gathering um, is likely to increase uh, spread of the virus, especially if people are closer together and especially if they're not wearing masks. Um, outdoors is much safer than indoors. 
indoors, the virus can accumulate over time as people are breathing out virus particles. So outside is much safer. And outside in the sun is even safer because the sun will help inactivate the virus. The ultraviolet radiation from the sun will help inactivate virus. But yeah, the more gatherings you have, the more people you have close together, the more likely you are to get transmission. Well, here's something that I thought was interesting. Um, A few weeks ago, I was talking to a physician And I was asking him how serious this was and if the closing down of everything was really working. And he made a comment that he said it absolutely was because you can see with regular illnesses that people get every year that have to be hospitalized, have to be seen by physicians. They weren't coming in that by closing everything down, it was stopping other diseases, not just COVID. Yeah, yeah, the unexpected benefits. Yeah, you know, human pathogens circulate by going from one human to another. So if you isolate humans from each other, it's going to decrease transmission of all infectious diseases. And yeah, we, we definitely have seen that. Vaccination probability. What are we looking at at this point? Because what are we about six months out from when this first started showing up? So there are at least 100 vaccines in the world. Um, and a number of them are already in human trials. So we have vaccines. We've got three issues with them. One, you need to find out, are they really safe? Two, you have to find out if they're effective. And so you have to have some kind of challenge to see if it really was able to protect people or not. And then the third problem is we have about 330 million people in the U.S. And we've got to produce, mass produce these vaccines to be available. So we need to know if they're safe. We need to know if they're effective and we need to actually have the vaccines. So some of the U.S. government has been um, pushing to produce some vaccines in large quantities before we even know whether or not they're effective and safe because it, because of the timeline. We, you know, we're in a rush. We need these vaccines. So they've started producing them, um, which I think is a smart idea. Did you tell me in a previous podcast that there was an issue with the SARS vaccine that it caused some damage? Yes. Yeah. So we did, um, we made SARS vaccines. We did the whole killed inactivated virus. And that's very similar, the similar way to influenza vaccines given when it's injected into your arm. That's a whole killed virus vaccine. So we made that for SARS. And then we also made a recombinant vaccine with the spike and nucleocapsid of SARS. And we cloned those into adenovirus and used it as a live virus vaccine. And we tested both of these vaccines in mice and in ferrets. And ferrets are a good lung model. Um, They're also used for influenza. And so the ferrets get significant lung disease from SARS coronaviruses, both of of these. And um, what we found is that when we injected the ferrets with either vaccine preparation and then boosted them, and then gave them a challenge with the, the SARS coronavirus, they still had significant lung damage um, and other hemorrhage and, and other organs, even though they've been vaccinated and boosted. So I'm worried that the current vaccines are not going to be as protective as we want them to be. But if they give some protection, um, you know, that, that might be enough. Some protection is better than no protection. But whenever we're talking about danger, could the vaccine hurt us rather than protect us? Yes, um, we have seen that in the past with vaccines. Um, Sometimes 
you can um, inject a person with a vaccine and they give a partial immune response and the antibodies that are made are not very good and they actually end up binding the virus and helping the virus get into cells that they wouldn't normally get into um, because of that the antibody binding. Um, so yeah, vaccines can make things worse. Um, and there was at least one published report actually a couple published reports that this might be happening um, with SARS, uh, the, the SARS coronavirus. So yeah, that's important to test safety of vaccines. And then of course, all medical interventions are a balance between how risky is the intervention versus how risky is the disease. So we have a lot of disease pressure right now, 30,000 cases and many thousand deaths. So that would cause us to go more rapidly and be more likely to use a vaccine with maybe less safety testing than we would have done previously. And some of the safety problems that we have with vaccines are pretty rare. So if you test it on a thousand people, it might look fine. But then when you actually roll it out and give it to millions of people, you might find out that there is some sort of problem with the vaccine. Um, that is a rare um, adverse event. So, so yeah, there's, you know, this is a new vaccine. Um, we need safety and efficacy on it. And we're in a rush because we have this strong disease pressure from this uh, pandemic virus that's circulating heavily in the United States now. So what are you working on right now at the Brody School of Medicine when it comes to COVID-19? So I'm working um, on diagnostic, diagnostics and vaccines. Um, we've got, um, so I'm working with some ECU physicians, ECU physicians on interpreting diagnostic tests. And um, we're actually writing a paper right now on the you know, proper analysis of these tests and good strategies for looking at patients to be able to be discharged from the hospital. We have a number of patients that are stuck in the hospital because they keep coming up with these PCR positive tests for the viral genome. So we're working on, on that. And um, I'm working with some other faculty in the dental school as well. Um, so right now, the nasopharyngeal swabs are the primary way that people are detecting virus and, and, and diagnosing COVID. But there's a few reports have come out that saliva is a good method um, for detecting uh, the virus. And you can have a person spit into a tube, and that's much easier than sticking the swab up the nose, which is very uncomfortable. And if you have the swab up the nose, the people have to be wearing PPE and have to change the PPE between each test, and it scratches the inside of the nose. It's a, it's a difficult, problematic thing to do, and it's technique-sensitive. But if people can just spit into a tube and you can test the virus from there, that's much better, much easier. It doesn't require PPE. Um, so that'd be great. And there are some, you know, good reports that it looks like it's almost as good or just as good. Some One report even better than the nasopharyngeal swabs. So we're working on that, on setting that up here um, with Brody School of Medicine and the School of Dental Medicine. And we did our first test on Friday, and we were able to detect the viral genome, so we know that the system is working. And the dental school needs to test everybody who comes in for treatment, and they need to test their care providers, so we're making sure that the dentists aren't giving virus to, to their patients and vice versa. 
So um, we're trying to set up the saliva test and be able to do that in the dental school. And then in addition, when we're taking the saliva tests, one of the things we can also look at is the microbiome in the mouth and how that affects the disease progression. So it might be that we can tell who's going to get really sick if we look at the factors in the saliva. So there's a lot of interesting things to look at there. How quickly are those tests that you can get the results? You know, we did one on Friday, and and we had results back in an hour and a half. But you have to collect the samples and transport them, and then you have to set up the assays. Um, So you could could potentially have them in the same day. Um, Yeah. It's a, the actual reaction itself is pretty fast, but you've got to get it all set up and um, get just the right amounts of all the different reagents in the tubes. Um, so, yeah, it can be a one-day test. And how are you working with the vaccines? I'm concerned from our previous data that antibodies to spike, uh, which is what many vaccines are looking at, and, and some of the nucleocapsid and the whole kill virus vaccines, what we saw with the ferrets is that they just didn't give very much protection. They were really disappointing, both of those vaccines. So I'm worried that the current vaccines that are being used are not going to give that really good protection, and especially in older people who have a decreased immune response. So I'm looking at a couple of different things. One is to use more of the proteins as targets um, in vaccine development. So instead of just spike, do spike nucleocapsid matrix. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different proteins that can be targets for the immune response. And then I've also got a platform vaccine, and ECU has a patent on this, that um, it's in a pox virus vector, and there's, a, there's genes in there that are immunosuppressive that block the immune responses. And so we have a patent where we've removed a, a very highly immunosuppressive gene, so it makes a better vaccine. It's safer and it's more effective. And if we clone those coronavirus genes into that vector, um, I think we could have a better vaccine than some of them that are being developed. And this might be especially important um, for older patients that have more chance of disease and a less robust immune response. That sounds fantastic, yet it's still what, a year away, year and a half away? Yeah, it takes time to develop these, to clone them and grow them up and to to test them and you have to do the sequencing. And then again, you know, when you have any vaccine, you need to start looking at safety and efficacy. So usually you do the safety trials in in animals first, so you do mice and then a, a smaller animal model, like maybe rabbit. And then you have to look at efficacy. Does it really protect from disease? And there are some mouse models to look at. Certainly the ferret model is, is a very good one, but those are very expensive. And um, at ECU now, we're setting up a biosafety level three coronavirus lab here on campus so that we can actually grow the virus and, and work with it um, in vaccine trials and animal testing. If you want to study the virus, you have to be able to grow it. When it comes to testing, how accurate are the tests? We don't really know. Uh, so there's all sorts of things that can affect the test. So when they do the nasopharyngeal swabs, um, did the person do it right? Right. So did they get a really good sample or not? So that's one question. This is kind of a technique issue. And then there's the, always the possibility. So SARS, this, this COVID SARS coronavirus can infect different ways. Um, It can give you gastrointestinal uh, symptoms. It can give you respiratory symptoms. So uh, the 
coronavirus test, the nasopharyngeal swab up the nose, uh, relies on virus replicating in that person in their nose. So if you've got it in a gastrointestinal way, um, you might come up negative on the test even though you have it. The other thing is if you inhale virus particles and they're large particles, they're likely to be uh, filtered out by your nasal turbinates so the virus will grow in your nose and throat. But if you have really tiny particles, the aerosolized size, less than five micrometers, those can often go straight into the lungs. So you could have virus replicating in the lungs. You have coronavirus, but you don't have much replicating in your throat or upper nose area. So it depends. So in order for the test to come back positive, you have to have virus replicating there at the time um, that they take the test. The other problem is if you get exposed on Tuesday and you get the test on Wednesday, you're probably going to come up negative. You could have the virus. It could be incubating in your body. It could be that you're going to come down with, with COVID, but you would test negative because there's not enough virus growing there to be able to detect it at the time. So you have to have enough virus. It has to be in the right place. They have to have good technique, um, all those things uh, for the test to come back positive. And there are certainly cases where people tested negative. Uh, even a couple of times, and then later they tested positive. So the tests are, are not always 100% reliable. If you get a positive test, you probably have it. If you have a negative test, you know, you still could have it. And then you have people who are asymptomatic that have it, and they don't know. Right, yeah. Uh, some estimates are even say that you know, it could be half of people that have the coronavirus don't even know it. There's a question sometimes, of, or is the person asymptomatic or are they pre-symptomatic? Sometimes they test somebody and they come up positive, but that person didn't have any symptoms. But five days later, they have symptoms. So sometimes you've got someone who's really asymptomatic. They never do have any symptoms. And sometimes the person gets called asymptomatic, but they're really just pre-symptomatic. They don't have symptoms yet. So there's been some um, confusion about that um, in the guidelines. So, But yeah, people that are asymptomatic can have the virus and they can spread it. And that's a real concern uh, for, for spreading the virus in the community. And that's one of the reasons that everybody needs to wear masks. Because a person could be infected and walking around and spewing out virus every time they exhale or speak and infecting everyone around them and not even know it. And some of the cases that were people that are asymptomatic, when they actually look at their lungs carefully, do CTs or x-rays, they can actually see some lung damage on people who have never had any symptoms and never, never did get any symptoms. But there's still a little bit of lung damage um, going on, but it's just not enough for the person to notice it. And is that a bad thing whenever, I mean, obviously you don't want lung damage, but is that something that you need to be worried about that, oh, I have some lung damage from COVID that's going to, but I didn't have any symptoms or the symptoms that I realized. And yet maybe someday down the line, it's going to cause even more issues. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible that if you're young and healthy, you don't notice any lung damage at all. But when you get older or when you have other respiratory problems, if you're already, you know, 5% or 10% impaired, that might make the difference. 
And we already know some people that were infected with coronavirus have, have continuing lung problems for many months or maybe permanently afterwards because the virus grows in the lung cells and kills them and it causes scarring in the lungs. And if you have scar tissue, you don't get good oxygen exchange across the scar tissue. You need the really thin cell walls to get the good oxygen exchange so the scars will inhibit um, the ability to get oxygen into the blood. So yeah, it's possible that down the line, um, you know, the little bit of lung damage that the virus has caused will, uh, will become a worse problem. Of course, influenza also causes lung damage right, and kills the, the lung cells too. Um, mostly our bodies, you know, recover and repair these things. There is a fear wherever it's coming from. I don't know, social media, uh, just people talking that the people that don't that are asymptomatic that they face more damage down the line than people think that it could come back in some other way is there any truth or any hypothesis to that um so if someone gets infected with the virus the virus is going to be replicating in their body in the first couple weeks and then the immune response should be initiated and then the immune response clears the virus hopefully if, if the person survives and then you should have a well we hope you have a strong memory response that will protect you for years from the virus but we actually don't know that for coronaviruses for sure um, a lot of people are concerned that just because you have an immune response doesn't mean you'll be protected in the future but if you're but you're going to get damaged from the virus in the first few weeks you have it. You're not going to be okay and then months later um, have damage. I can't think of, of a, a case where that would really happen because you're going to have most of the virus replicating and killing cells in the first few weeks that you have it. And if your immune system you know, comes in and mops it up and, and protects you and you survive, um, it shouldn't cause big problems later. So we don't have to worry that it's a Trojan horse. No, that's unlikely. The one, you know, one possibility is you could get infected with the virus, and it induces an immune response, and then that immune response um, cross reacts uh, with your own cells and causes an autoimmune response. Um, but we really don't have any evidence of that uh, occurring. Uh, with this virus. So I that's not something that we've seen. I think it's very unlikely. Yeah, if you get the virus, it's going to hurt you in the first couple weeks. It's not going to, you know, hang around and be silent and then suddenly come out later. Now, if a person doesn't have an immune response, if they're immunocompromised, there could be a persistent infection that occurs um, where the person can't clear the virus and they keep shedding it. Um, and then they would be potentially carriers in the population. But, I mean, the people that are immunocompromised uh, will probably already know it, and they're um, at greater risk for any virus infection. Have you seen anything that people had it, uh, they were able to get over it, whether, whether it was within a 12-hour fever, chills, that sort of thing, to having a fever for a couple days? How do we know what kind of long-term damage our organs like our heart, our kidneys, that sort of thing could have taken to this. Is there a way yeah. to know? Yeah, that's true. Um, there are blood tests that can detect, you know, recent cardiac damage. Um, there, you know, you can do the regular liver tests and kidney tests that they frequently do on your annual blood work um, that would show if there had been some damage. 
Um, some of those would only show recent damage, and some of them might might show if there's decreased functioning of the organ, um, would show up in the tests for much longer. Has it seemed to be weakening this summer at this point? No, unfortunately. Um, but it's hard to tell because it, it's getting warmer and sunnier at the same time when we started opening up. So we're getting as if this if the opening up had occurred in fall, we might have you know eight, ten times as many cases as we do now. We, we don't know. We have two things changing at once, so it's hard to know which is which. But we know that in the southern hemisphere, where it's winter now, um, they're also having a great increase in cases. So we're getting increases where it's warm and summer-like, and we're getting increases in, in places where it's colder and more winter-like. So <clears throat> I was hoping that summer would really help protect us, but it, it doesn't look like it's going to protect us as much as I had hoped. As I said, we've got 30,000 new cases a day occurring this week. Whenever you're talking about the flu, do you know how many new cases a day that you have to put this into perspective? I do not have those data. Um, In the the U.S., um, we can get between 5,000 and 60,000 deaths a year from influenza, depending on the year. Um, a couple years ago, we had a particularly bad year. I think it was almost 70,000 deaths. But for COVID-19, we've already had 120,000 deaths. And that's with all of this great care and shutting down. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think it's going to be a, a real concern. Uh, this is much worse than influenza. Uh, so we really do have to be careful. When we're looking at the fall, and that's typically when influenza cases come back, that sort of thing. What's the prognosis, or is there even a prognosis right now for COVID for this fall? I think it will be worse in fall, um, more likely to transmit, just like influenza is. Um, We all know when you exhale outside in winter and it's cold, you can see your breath in the air. Well, that happens all the time. That happens in summer and in winter. You just see it in winter because it's cold and the droplets condense. Um, So um, in winter, when it's drier, those droplets that you exhale um, evaporate very quickly. So the virus stays floating in the air longer. And they believe that's one reason why there's more transmission in fall. In summer, when it's humid and you exhale, the water droplet stays heavy. It doesn't evaporate as quickly, so it falls out of the air more quickly. And so you're less likely to have the virus in the air spreading to other people. But yeah, I expect fall to be worse than summer. And again, also because the ultraviolet rays from the sun are less intense. Is there a chance that we might have a shutdown again this fall? I know universities are doing a situation where they are building into their schedules a possibility for this. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's going to be a public health call depending on you know how many cases there are. Um, so yeah, so ECU has now the eight week blocks so that if there has to be a shutdown, um, that at least the, the students can have access to, to campus and to uh, in-person classes for at least the first eight weeks, or maybe there's going to be an outbreak early and the second eight weeks would be better for classes. So yeah, so we're arranging it so that the, that the scheduling uh, will be easier if, there, if we do have to go back into um, more of a contained uh, schedule and, and stay away from other people. 
And what about the possibility with the flu coming back in the fall as well? Yeah, that'll be really difficult. You'll have people coming in um, with respiratory symptoms and they'll have to figure out if you've got influenza or if you have uh, COVID. And the rapid tests for those two that they use in the office um, are not very sensitive. So if you get a positive for flu or for COVID, you probably really do have it. But if you get a negative, they don't know if it's really negative or not. And then they would have to do the nasopharyngeal swabs and and run the tests, and that takes a while. So the clinicians will have some trouble in fall distinguishing whether a patient has influenza or if they have the novel coronavirus that causes COVID. And I'm sure that that will cause an even bigger issue because of treatment. Trying to determine which way to go? Yeah, you have to know what the person has before you can treat it. We have drugs that are actually good against influenza. If you start them in the first day or two, um, Tamiflu Tamiflu is one of them. Um, But you have to start them early, so you have to know what the patient has. Um, And maybe by then we'll have some more drugs that work for for coronavirus. Um, We have remdesivir, which has already shown some efficacy. Um, And those trials were done where remdesivir was given late in the infection. So if we give remdesivir early in the infection, it would be much more effective. Because if you've got a viral infection, you want to stop it from replicating early, not later after it's already spread all over your body. So we have remdesivir. Um, There are antibody treatments being developed also. And if you give them early, they should be more effective. And then um, we've recently found that some some steroids, uh, dexamethasone, can be useful later in the infection when the immune response overreacts and they need to turn the immune system down. So it looks like dexamethasone can increase survival in patients that have severe coronavirus illness and a lot of lung disease. Major sports and even college sports are trying to figure out a way how are we going to be able to get games played because there's a lot of money for the economy that is pumped into this stuff especially for universities with the football programs and other athletic departments there's revenue that comes in so they're trying to figure out a way is it realistic for these teams to be able to play like i know with the nba they're looking at having the players sequestered to just the players playing stay in orlando i mean is that possible to keep yeah, the spread away? If you have a group of people that are tightly controlled and tested and nobody's coming in and out, you could make a what's called a bubble, a social bubble, so that everybody in that bubble is safe. But you've got, you know, everybody has outside contacts. You have families if you're in contact with them. You have, you know, uh, food service people coming in and out, cleaning staff coming in and out. And so it's possible to to get the virus in that bubble. You know, we've certainly seen that in um, nursing homes and prisons, right? If you they're in a bubble, but if somebody comes in from the outside, you can really spread it pretty quickly. So these contact sports were, that are close, um, we have people standing close to each other, or you know, like basketball, uh, certainly football. Um, and you know, if you're exercising, you're breathing heavily, and you're much more li- likely to be releasing large quantities of virus into the air. So, um, softball, baseball might be you know pretty good. They're standing far apart from each other out outside, but then you know the fans are sitting next to each other. 
So, and that's, that's a high risk, um, you know, problem. If you've got a, a lot of people in an area sitting together, it's better if it's outside than it's inside. It's better if you have more distance than if you have less distance. Would it surprise you if the sports are done for the year and don't come back until sometime in 2021? Yeah, I don't know what they're gonna, what's gonna happen. I think i I've heard on the news of a couple cases where they were starting to ramp up some sports and then all of a sudden they got a bunch of cases and they had to close them back down again. So, you know, there may be, you know, some places that try it and some may get lucky and be okay and some may be unlucky and and not get it. Um, I think one of the things that we have to be careful of as a society is to not always blame the people who get the virus or who gets sick because we know that there are things you can do that make you safer and we know you're much more likely to get the virus if you're in crowds if you're not maintaining social distance if you're not wearing a mask but it's also completely possible for someone to do pretty much everything right you know maintain social distance wear masks and they're still going to get it a lot of this is going to be you know it's a matter of luck whether or not the person you walked by just now um, just exhaled a bunch of virus or not whether or not you were unlucky whether there was a little space around your mask when it got in and you inhaled it so we want to be sure not to um, ostracize or blame the people who come down with the virus and if you were to bet on how long it's going to take for us to have COVID-19 in our rearview mirror are we looking at a year year and a half two years I think it's going to be three years. And this happened with polio, too. The first vaccines that they used, um, there were problems with them. And, um, and you know, there was the, the inactivated polio virus vaccine, and then there was the live virus vaccine that they used. And um, there have been problems, actually, with both of those over the years. And um, so now we have to rather complicated regimen to, to use for the whole world to eradicate polio virus. But we've almost done it. We've had very good uh, clearance of polio from the whole world now because of the vaccination programs. Um, it's just a couple countries that are at war um, where we can't get in and vaccinate everybody. Um, of course, now with the SARS coronavirus, the polio might come back too because they can't vaccinate people. But my point here is that with polio virus that used to infect and kill millions of people, we were basically able to eradicate it. We're very close to eradication now. And I think that with SARS coronavirus, there's no reason we can't also do that. But it might take a few years and some tweaking of the vaccine strategies before we really get it under control. So the new normal for the next couple years. Yeah, I think we're going to have to be careful and, and watch social distancing and wear the masks. And we'll get more and more information, uh, I think, in the next uh, you know six months or year, how people are actually getting it. Because, you know, sometimes we can really tell. Who, how people are getting it. There's one case where the you know friends went out to the bar and all of them got it. <laughs> so we know that that's where they got it from. And then there's a bunch of parties and churches and where we can trace all of the infected cases back to. But then there's community transmission where people come down with it and really don't know where they got it from. Um, so that's the what we need to understand more is where are people really getting this virus from? And there's been more uh, studies on, you know, how much is touching things to cause versus how much is breathing things, um, the concern. And so we'll know more about that and have a little better um, better take on, on how people are actually getting it over the next year so we can hone our, our you know, protective measures better. 
with immunity when it comes to this. You have it, whether you test positive, test negative and have it. What does it look like our chances are of not getting it again and being able to head out into the population? So, yeah, that's very controversial. My belief is that if you get the virus and your immune system can control it and contain it and make a good immune response, that you're likely to do that again in the future. But there are there's some evidence, especially with coronaviruses, that the immune response that occurs the first time doesn't last very long, and it doesn't set up a good memory response. So your body's immune system doesn't remember it and bring up a good uh, secondary immune response if you see it again. So that's one of the things we really don't know. I suspect you're going to be protected, but it's possible that you're not. Um, some pathogens can infect people more than once. We just don't make a good good immune response to it, or a long-lasting one. That's why people, there's a lot of confusion and questioning about the antibody tests. So if you have antibody to the virus, uh, and and it's a good test, there's a lot of bad tests out there. (laughs) Don't use any tests that aren't FDA approved. Um, There's a lot of scams out there. But if you really have antibodies to the virus, um, it means that you were infected. Um, it takes a while for your body to make antibodies. So you can't test someone who just got infected and expect them to have antibodies. They'll be antibody negative. But a couple weeks after um, the virus infection, you should probably have antibodies. So if you test positive for antibodies, you probably were infected um, and cleared it. Um, But yeah, but we don't know if that means you can't get it again. And we also don't know for sure if that means you're not a carrier. You could um, have had the infection and made the antibodies and you're mostly okay, but you could still be making virus and secreting it at a low level, you know, high enough to infect other people potentially. When it comes to being infected, do we have a better timetable on how long you're contagious? Yeah, that's very controversial as well. So... You, the, you get the virus, it starts growing in your body. At first, it won't be detectable because there's not enough there. And then, if you, especially if you get sick, but at any rate, at some point, there will be a lot more virus in your body. And then, as your immune system takes care of it, the amount of virus decreases and decreases and decreases. Um, so, but the test that detects virus detects pieces of the viral genome And so you can have that hanging around in your body for weeks afterwards. So you don't really have live virus. You just have pieces of genome, uh, little remnants of virus that are still in there that can still be detected by the test. So um, one of the criteria for releasing someone from the hospital is two negative consecutive negative PCR tests. Well, a lot of our patients, maybe 10%, some are saying about 30%, they keep coming up positive on the PCR test, the nasopharyngeal swabs, but they don't think they're really contagious anymore. And now there have been a number of reports coming out that show that even though they come up positive on the PCR test, there's really not any live virus there. So they're looking at the sensitivity of the tests and at the symptoms and how long the person has been um, free of symptoms, how long they've been free of fever. Um, So just because they can detect a viral genome um, in a patient uh, a couple weeks after they've been in doesn't mean they still have virus that's being released. A number of reports have come out. A Korean CDC did a test. Uh, Singapore did one. There have been a, a couple U.S. reports um, that if there's a low enough level of the genome that we can pretty much safely say that the person is not contagious anymore. 
that may not be 100% correct because there may be some people that don't have that great of an immune response and they might still keep shedding virus for quite a while. So we don't really know. But yeah, I, I think if somebody, you know, gets the virus, I think they should be really careful for the next month at least. Be really careful about washing your hands after going to the bathroom because we know the virus can be shed in feces. Um, so we've got to really be careful that... Uh, People, well, everybody needs to be doing this because if you're asymptomatic, you could have it, right? You have no symptoms, right. but you could be spreading the virus. And if you've recovered um, recently, you might still be shedding some virus that could be live virus that you could end up infecting somebody else. Now that we're opening up, we're seeing more and more cases. Do we have a situation now where we're going to start seeing a herd immunity or is that still too early at this point? For herd immunity, you have to have a very large number of people that have already been infected or vaccinated and have a, a really good immune response so that they can't spread the virus anymore. So um, some people are confused about herd immunity. They think, well, just let the virus sweep through the country and then we'll have herd immunity. Well, that's true, but we have 330 million people here. If, if the virus only kills 1% of people that get infected, that would be 3 million deaths in the U.S. So we don't want to go that route, right? We don't want to get herd immunity because everybody got infected because we'd have millions of people die, millions of Americans dead if, if we did that. We want to get herd immunity through vaccines, right? So we need to get an effective vaccine, get everybody vaccinated, and then we will have a good, healthy, effective herd immunity, hopefully. So how are the treatments going right now for COVID that if someone comes to the doctor's office and they test positive? Our physicians across the world have learned better now how to treat patients. So they used to put patients on ventilators much more readily than they do now. They found out that the ventilators are causing a lot of problems, lung problems and other problems. And so now they're, they're trying not to put patients on ventilators unless they absolutely need them. So the physicians are learning how to take care of patients better um, than how we knew in, in the beginning of, the, of this uh, pandemic. The other thing is that we have these treatments that look like they have some efficacy. So now when patients come in, they can get put on remdesivir and, um, and it can provide them some protection. And they're also using the antibody treatments. So, so patients coming in now have a better chance of surviving than if they went were hospitalized a few months ago. So that will also help bring the death rates down as physicians learn better how to care for the patients and as we get more drug <clears throat> drug treatments that come online and dexamethasone for the for the patients who have severe lung disease. So so we are learning about how to treat and um, and the patients have a better chance of surviving now than they did uh, a couple months ago even. Which is fantastic news with that. I'm sure yeah, that alleviates yeah. a lot of stress out there. Do we know what the average age is of the people who are dying from this? The older you are, the more dangerous it is for you. But we have we have literally 100-year-old people who have survived the virus and, and, and recovered. Um, but, you know, and they tend to break it down if you're over 65, you're especially sensitive to the virus. But there's no line at 65. Right. 64 is more dangerous than 63, which is more dangerous than 60. Right. So the older you are, the more dangerous it is. But a lot of it's just going to be genetics. 
Um, and in New York City, the the cases um, of people over 65, the number of deaths over 65, was about the same as people between 45 and 64. There was about the same number of deaths. So you're really not safe, you know, if you're in the 45 to 64 category either. So we got to make sure people don't, you know, think too much that they're safe when they're not. And we've found out now with the inflammatory diseases that even young children um, can get sick. And we've had babies die um, from the virus already. So um, nobody's really safe. Um, You're probably a lot safer if you're below age 30. And the older you are, the more likely you are to get it. One of the big problems we have in the U.S. is that um, is obesity. 40% of Americans are obese, and that's a major factor, comorbidity, that's causing deaths. Diabetes, um, heart disease, obesity. So really, half of the U.S. population is at very much increased risk. And um, the patients in our hospital here, um, a large percentage of them are obese. So if you've ever thought about losing weight, now is the time to do it. It will greatly decrease your chances of death. Because if you have all that extra tissue um, for your body to try to take care of, it, it adds, it's a much increased burden when you're trying to fight a virus as well. And you have to get oxygen to all those tissues. So we really want to encourage people to lose weight. Another thing that that the doctors locally have noted is that the patients that come in that are really sick and get hospitalized are very low in their vitamin D. So this is a good time to make sure that, you know, people are taking their multivitamins or drinking milk that has vitamin D supplemented in it. Um, You know, we don't know for sure, but um, this is a really important time for everybody to make sure that they're taking care of their basic health. You know, eat right, um, exercise uh, so that your lungs are good and strong. And, you know, make sure you're getting enough of of vitamins, vitamin D, vitamin C, really, you know, everything. Who can you believe right now? You know, at the top of this, I had a stat. Uh, They were sort of apples and oranges, but they were both fruit. So it was similar enough. But it seems like you have more conservative people are saying, ah, this isn't that bad. More liberal people are saying, hey, this is something that we have to take seriously why has this become political yeah it's very strange um you wouldn't think that public health would be a political measure but if politicians are are weighing the economic effects and they put a lot of emphasis on the economy and less on the health of americans then they would be more inclined to open up and support the economy and you know most of most of the health professionals are really worried about this the public health people the physicians um, all of our healthcare workers and i have a few in my family um, are very worried about this and are being very careful and doing everything they can to protect themselves so you know those are the, the experts who actually know what's going on and they're worried about this and being very careful about this cdc and world health organization mostly give good advice most physicians are giving good advice what's our death rate looking like right now well um so the, yeah the death rate's always difficult to calculate because you to actually get the real number you would have to really know how many people have it and of course we have a lot of people that have it that haven't been tested um 
or and then we we don't know how many people will eventually die um you know there are a number of patients hospitalized right now and we don't know how many will actually die um if you look at um the the cases um at the uh, worldometer uh, coronavirus website um in the u.s um we've got about an 89% uh, recovery discharge and 11% deaths, but that's an overestimate. We think it's probably really around 1% or 0.5% of people who actually die, but it's still much higher than influenza ever is in the last you know, 100 years. That's one of the things where you say, you know, 1%. So for the people who are petrified of this thing, that are living in fear, that 1%, oh, that's good news. You know, hopefully I'm part of that 99%, but not that 1%. But that 1% right. is a human being. That is a loved one. And once you start getting up to numbers like 3 million, that's going to impact, I, I don't know what the probability would be, but more than likely you would know someone who was victimized by this. Yeah, if it's 1% fatality, right, that would be, if you know 100 people, somebody you know will have died from it. Um, so, we, we pray, you know, it's probably true that the virus fatality rate's more like 0.5%, so you know 200 people, right? So at your work, at your church, and your extended family, you know, people know 200 people, and one of those would have died. So if the fatality rate's, you know, 0.5%, maybe we get one and a half million people dead in the U.S. And that compares to influenza, which is sometimes, you know, 5,000 deaths in a year, sometimes 30,000 deaths in a year. This would be 1.5 million deaths. So much, much worse than influenza. We've heard the proper thing to do is to wear the mask, but how do you get the people who are not wearing the masks to wear the masks? Yeah, yeah, with it, especially with it becoming political and people don't want to do it. And um, Well, I don't know if you, you remember um, there was a time when they made wearing seatbelts mandatory by law, and many people were very angry about this, and they said, I don't have to wear seatbelts, I don't want the government telling me what to do, And but it saves lives. And and now I think it's not controversial anymore. Pretty much everybody wears their seatbelts, I think. Um, so it's the same way when you introduce a new rule or a new law like this. But more and more places are requiring masks now. And um, and the governor of North Carolina has talked about it. And last the, the last report he was saying is they're studying the way to get the best compliance from people, right? So if you make it mandatory, are they more likely to be compliant or are they going to be defined? So they're looking into that currently. But Raleigh's requiring masks. Dare County's requiring masks. A bunch of states are now. And a bunch of counties all across the country are requiring masks. So originally they were saying not to use masks. And that was especially because the N95 masks were in short supply. So they didn't want everybody buying them up all across the country. So the healthcare workers couldn't get them because there's a shortage. So the N95 masks are definitely the best. They give the best protection. But they're the most uncomfortable, the most difficult to breathe through, and they have to be fit tested to your face. So the N95 masks are not for the general population. They're very good, but they're, you don't need them, and they're, they're really uncomfortable and difficult. The next best uh, mask is the surgical masks, the little kind of you know paper cloth-like ones that are kind of white and light green or light blue. Those are the next best ones, and they're especially good if you can crimp the nose area so that it fits across the nose well. 
And so, and those are becoming much more available now. And those are good to use. And I wear mine and then I leave it in my hot car to sterilize. <laughs> if you leave it in a car, it gets 120 degrees for a day. It's probably going to be sterile when you come back. Um, so the surgical masks are the next best. And then they're recommending cloth masks. And if you have a cloth mask, you want it to fit your face pretty well. And it should be at least two layers thick. And it's probably best if you can't see light through it right because it's going to be tighter woven you know cotton cloth and it's best if it fits your face tight it's got to cover your nose and all the way down to under your chin and you've got to watch around the nose because you don't want that big airspace there but where where the virus where the air comes in without going through the mask so it's best if you can crimp it on the nose so that it, it makes a v-shape across your nose and fits tight but yeah any mask is going to give you a lot more protection than no mask and it's certainly going to protect you from spewing virus on others as well. So if everybody's wearing masks, we can have a great deal of protection um, for the whole community. If I'm out for a walk on a sidewalk, do I need to have a mask in case someone's passing me? I think if you're outside and not near a bunch of people, you're probably okay without a mask. Um, but if people are going to you know, walk up to you and start talking to you, you know, I just take a step back and I, I put my arm out and I say, six feet, you know, let's, let's stay apart, be careful. Um, so you want to stay away from it. If you're on a sidewalk and somebody's going to pass you, you know, twice in your walk, you're probably going to be okay. You can always step off the sidewalk so that you maintain the distance. The other thing you can do is hold your breath right, right when you walk by. So when you're going to be inhaling what they're exhaling, just hold your breath. You know, you can do that for a minute. And I think it probably provides some protection. Um, but if you're outside, you, you know, you're probably okay. If you're running behind somebody, so if somebody's running and they have it, they're going to be exhaling a lot of virus. So you would want to stay back from somebody. You know, if you're running right behind somebody for 15 minutes, you're going to be breathing in a lot of what they're exhaling. So I would, in that case, I would try to stay farther away from people. Um, same thing for bicycling. You know, if you pass somebody once, it's probably you're probably not going to be not going to get it. You're probably going to be okay. Um, but if you're following behind somebody for 15 minutes, you've got a lot of exposure to that person. So in that case, I would you know change directions or you know go a different route or turn around. It'll feel weird shaking someone's hand again. Yeah, that might be a while <laughs> until that happens. Or hugging people, you know, in, in Europe, they, they kiss as a greeting. They kiss people on the cheek. And, you know, I, that's not going to, that's going to be a long-term change, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But really shaking hands has always been a dangerous thing to do. But people in my lab, I always tell them, don't shake hands. People come in and, you know, introduce them. And they put their hand out. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> it's just, you know, touching people is just uh, a good way to spread spread germs. What kind of hope can you offer us to end this podcast? We have physicians who are already learning better how to treat patients. And we have new drugs that are coming on that are, that are showing efficacy. So we've got remdesivir. That seems to be working. Um, we can use dexamethasone on people that um, are farther along in the disease and having too much of an immune response, too much inflammation in their lungs. Um, we already know not to put people on ventilators as, as quickly as we were doing. So we've got better, better treatments that are coming on, and we've got vaccine development. We already have vaccines that have been injected into humans. We know they create an immune response, and we're hoping that they will give some protection. 
So we've got public health efforts to try and keep the virus from spreading. We have improved treatments, and we're developing vaccines that hopefully will work. So back in, you know, the 1950s, we had polio virus that would, you know, have uh, epidemics in the U.S. every year. And, um, and through vaccine development and widespread vaccination, we pretty much don't have polio anymore in the U.S., and I think that's what will happen with this SARS coronavirus 2 that causes COVID. We will eventually get a hold of it and have a, a good vaccine that works. Well, Dr. Rachel Roper, Associate Professor of Microbiology and Immunology at ECU's Brody School of Medicine, thank you so very much for taking part in Talk Like a Pirate yet again. Thank you. Stay safe, everybody. Wear your masks. Well, that's it for episode 13 of Talk Like a Pirate. I'm sure we'll be talking to Dr. Roper again in the not-so-distant future for the latest on COVID-19 as it's an ever-evolving situation. We hope you found her information to be helpful. As always, thank you so very much for taking your time to listen to us because it really does mean a lot. Until the next time we meet, please stay safe and healthy, and we will get through this pandemic together one way or another. And don't forget, always be yourself, unless you can be a pirate, then always be a pirate.